Well, welcome to Lesson 5 of our incredible journey through the book of Colossians. Here we are finishing our halfway mark of our study. Maybe you thought this week um, the lesson was a little dry. Honestly, me too. I felt like when you go on the Matterhorn at Disneyland, you get on this this cart, and you're excited for the journey and the excitement of it. And in the beginning of the journey, it's kind of creeping along. And then when you get to the top of the crest, you are really crawling, crawling, going slow. But then you mount the crest, and you see the whole picture. And then it really picks up speed. And that's what we're seeing here. We're laying the foundation. We're getting there, getting there, getting there. And then chapter 3 starts, comes out of the chute with that incredible F then. You be raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your heart, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on this earth. But in that, then it gets practical. It gets real practical. Rubber meet the road. If we are raised up with Christ, how then shall we live? So, so we are still in the climbing process. And let's now look at Colossians 2. And we will backtrack just a little bit to verse 13. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that we're learning so much. That, God, you're building a case and building a case of who you are. And you're building a case who we are, Lord. Help us not to take any of that for granted. Let us listen to your warnings as we step into this section of how to not waste our time, not to how, how to not be sidetracked and then sidelined because we're not in tune with you. And so we pray one more time as we step into this text that you'd speak to our hearts. Fill us with the knowledge <clears throat> of your will, with the knowledge of who you are. And we pray and we ask it, In Jesus' name, amen. So you have a handout. If you could look at it now, the title of this message this week is Don't Get Sidetracked, Condemned, or Cheated, or Confused. And in the big, bold print, it says, Remember, remember the glorious reality of what Christ has done for you and in you. We're going to backtrack again to verse 13 because it's important to what we're now going to talk about. Remember, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. It was not cut away yet. Then God, he made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. And then he, Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Debt paid. Remember those powerful words, Father, forgive them, for they knew 
and they know, not what they do. And that still describes us sometimes, doesn't it? Verse 16 starts out with the word, so, which used in this context is like saying, therefore, because of this wonderful reality, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, for not celebrating certain holidays and new moons, ceremonies and Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadow of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is the reality. Don't let anyone cheat you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. That is high-sounding. Nonsense, right? Webster's Dictionary defines legalism, which is our topic this week, as strict, often too strict, and literal adherence to the law. Chuck Swindoll said that legalism invariably denies the principle of grace and exalts the pride of man. Maybe you grew up in a religion that had some of that, or maybe a lot of it. Lots of ritual, lots of rules or obligations, lighting candles, pictures of angels, trying to pull yourself together and feeling condemned when you didn't. No real sense of complete forgiveness. Some churches actually have still on display Christ still on the cross, not our resurrected sitting at the right hand of the Father, dwelling in us, reality. Billy Graham said, and listen to this carefully, man has two great spiritual needs. One is for forgiveness. The other is for goodness. We long for that. Consciously or unconsciously, our inner beings long for that. And I believe that's true. So then, what is the answer? What's the answer? Paul wrote to the Galatians church, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith that sets you free? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the works of the flesh? It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen that way. It's always by the spirit. So, this is what we see sometimes. Sometimes we see it in other people and in, in, in ourselves even. And when I do see it in people or in myself, they either go two paths. They become hypocrites, pretending, or they just give up because there's condemnation. But Romans 8 has the wonderful answer for that too. It says there's now, right now, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life 
has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that was weak because of the sinful flesh, God did. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, here again, we are at the finish line uh, of the, the halfway mark. So, let's tackle this topic of legalism. What really is it? What really is it? Is it book like Leviticus in the law, which quite frankly, most Christians would never, never read even a few pages, let alone the whole book. But in the one-year Bible, I read it every year. And I find it not just a powerful book, but an interesting book and actually a moving book. Really, it is not a complicated system of high-sounding nonsense. It absolutely is not. So, I want to answer the question, were the laws of living that God gave Moses to the Jewish people as they entered and moved through the desert nonsense? Absolutely no. Please write that down. Absolutely no. They, in fact, were brilliant. They were God-brilliant. Let me give you some, some real examples, concrete examples. Number one, dietary laws. If you have your pen, write this down. Leviticus eleven thirteen was a you shall not. A you shall not. And so what was it? You shall not eat a certain kind of meat, a certain kind of bird. You shall not kill a vulture or a raven, and then eat it, cook it and eat it. Why? Why would that be true, that you're not supposed to do that? Well, vultures and ravens eat roadkill. Absolutely. Vultures and ravens eat dead animals, sometimes rotten animals. They're the garbage collectors and garbage disposals of the planet. Such things are full of bacteria. Another bird they're not supposed to eat is... Bats. It says that in the Bible. I was explaining this to my sister today, and she said that it says that in the Bible that they weren't supposed to eat bats. Absolutely. It's interesting. I have a friend who lives in Hong Kong, and once in a while, in the last few weeks, she's sending me texts of what's going on there. There's 75,000 people in that region that are infected with the coronavirus right now. And they have traced it, traced it down to where did that come from? Well, it came from a very small little store in China, in the Huang Providence. And a man in that store, he decided to kill a bat, cook it, and eat it. Unfortunately, it appears that that bat had a virus that has now infected thousands and killed already many They were also, the children of Israel, were not supposed to eat rats. The bubonic plague that killed 20 million people in the 1300s was called the Black Death. 
So where did it come from? What caused it? How did it spread? Actually, that plague began in China also. They've never been in the habit of eating right things. In those days, they ate rats and all kind of other creepy things. And rats then carried, because rats feed on rotten things and sometimes even even rotten dead flesh. And as those rats carried it and then died, people just picked them up and threw them, threw them away. And then when people were infected and they died, again, they just picked them up and dealt with them with their hands, touching dead people. But in the Levitical law, the Jews were commanded to wash their hands, to wash their hands especially after touching anything that was dead. It says that in Leviticus. They were the only people on the planet who regularly washed their hands for any reason for thousands of years. Leviticus has other wonderful obligations. In Leviticus, the Jews were also commanded to be kind and generous to the widows and orphans, to help their neighbor, and to pay their bills. These were God's laws, and they were for right living, not to put people in a box so they could live right and true and good. So, I will ask you the question, are the Ten Commandments Legal, legalism. <clears throat> Are all of the thou shalt nots bad? Again, I'm asking you to put on your thinking caps. All of us. I believe everyone in this room, in some way or another, has suffered the results in our lives or our families or our friends' lives of somebody Somebody in our world breaking one or more of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not commit adultery. They did it and we suffered. Personally, bring it at home, all of us have suffered the shame and the painful consequences of our own sin, right? The founding fathers of the United States used the Bible and scripture, including the Ten Commandments, more than any other source to draft the constitution of this new country called the United States. They considered the Bible as the basis of founding a stable and a moral nation. And no nation is stable unless it's also moral. The Bible was printed in that beginning stages as a textbook for every child in every school to read it for themselves. And the Ten Commandments were posted in classrooms and courtrooms. But in 2004, the ACLU sued Kentucky counties for displaying the Ten Commandments. And what was their reasoning? What was their argument that they took to court? 
their argument was, if adults or children see those laws, it will make them feel that they should obey them and feel guilty if they don't. Right. Right. So they were taken down. School after school, other counties were sued and states until almost all of the Ten Commandments have been stripped away. This left our society with no moral guardrails, no boundaries of protection. And what were the results? I think statistics are very important for us to know. Since the year 2004, violent crime has soared 470%. SAT scores of students have plummeted. Teachers are highly now disrespected. Divorce rates have skyrocketed. Single-family households have skyrocketed. And couples living together statistically have increased 1,000%. We see the present state of our world has become rapidly more and more a world without moral guardrails. Lives are being pulled down, leaving people, children, teenagers adrift. We need instructions. We need warnings wisdom to live by. In fact, that is exactly, again, what we'll see in Colossians 3 and 4, rubber meeting the road. So, (laughs) so back to our issue this week, legalism. Why is that bad? If God's rules in and of themselves are good, why is legalism bad? Why is legalism bad? high-sounding nonsense. Well, as we know, and Rob has, has pointed out this faithfully a number of times recently, as we know, Jesus constantly combated, constantly went toe-to-toe with the legalistic Jewish, Jewish leaders. So what was the problem? So what was the real problem? since God did give us the Ten Commandments and other requirements to fulfill. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. Number one, they added. They added and added and added to God's law, making everything a burden and complicated. Even the washing of hands, you couldn't just turn on the water and wash your hands. No, you had to do it this specialized, fancy, ornate way. Nonsense. Now, you've all heard of the kosher system that the Jewish eat kosher. You might wonder, well, well, what does that mean? Maybe you've never thought about it. It means that you cannot eat cheese, a dairy product, with meat. Not together. Not ever. You can't even use the same pan to cook macaroni and cheese And then a steak. There are no cheeseburgers served in Israel. And why would that be? Why is that such a big deal? And trust me, it is such a big deal. 
from one tiny little verse. And listen to the verse. The verse says, you should not cook, say if you, you uh, butcher a calf, and that's feel, right? Tender beef. Uh, when you cook it, don't make the gravy out of its mother's milk. Now, I don't know really why that's so, but it's a very, very small little line. But what has happened? It's a very, very, very big deal. Complicated, expensive, and a burden to God's people. God is not a rule giver to burden us. It's always for our good. That's number one. They added and added. Number two, they measured their position with God, not by knowing him and his heart, by just obeying the rules. Jesus said, guys, you have it all wrong. You draw near to me with your mouth, but your hearts, they're way far from me. That's a crying shame. And number three, they measured their righteousness as better than others, looking down on the sinner. But when Jesus came, he considered that nonsense. We're all ruined sinners. Don't you know? Don't you know that? We are. Jesus was a friend to sinner, but he didn't leave them where they are. He always was after them to rescue them out of the darkness. Amen? These were the issues confronting the church then in Colossae. And they were dividing the church, confusing the church, condemning the church. But truthfully, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about me. I was thinking about the people I really know and hang out. That's that's oftentimes kind of not the issue. As I look at the church at large right now, especially in the United States, I kind of think that's not the big number one issue. Truthfully, sometimes I wonder if the pendulum of the church has swung too far in the opposite direction. Maybe we're too casual. Maybe we're not thinking that we need to conform and be transformed to God's kingdom, seeking his kingdom first. I'm wondering if sometimes we're just coasting. I sit over there as my normal seat at church. Um, most of the time it's just because my husband can find me there if... if um, He's talking to somebody when I sit down, or I'm talking to somebody when he sits down. So, and I like my comfortable seat, actually. I, I like that, that Christianity is comfortable. I like it best when he brings me a latte and I'm sitting in my comfortable sh- seat. But um, I'm not sure we should always get so comfortable. No. We have a dying world out there. Yes, we do. Not to get so comfortable. Let me tell you some stories. That's where we're going to bring this home. This is an election year, and some of you have heard me tell this story before. 
but there was a man on the street, and he was campaigning for his candidate. And his campaign slogan was verbalized as he saw a homeless man sitting on the edge, and he pointed to that raggedy man, and he said, if my candidate is elected, he will put new clothes on that man. Well, a Christian in the crowd could not resist. And he stood up and said, by pointing to the same raggedy man, he said, if this raggedy man were to accept Jesus into his heart, then Jesus would put a new man in those clothes. And that's the story. That's the good news that we have. That's the message. And we should be burning to tell it. Because people are dying to hear it right now. Let me tell you another story that I think brings it home, and it should. In the late 1960s and the early 1970s, that first generation of children who grew up with no prayer in the schools and being taught evolution, that they were just a a result of a series of billions of random mutations, and therefore, there was no God. Now, in the 60s and the 70s, those children were now teenagers. And they did have some big questions on their hearts and on their minds. What is the meaning of life? Who am I? And why am I here? I believe every generation has those. Whether they're quite as verbal as that one was, they are still deep in there, haunting us and driving us to seek answers. Augustine was quite a wild and rambunctious and quite um, not good young man. But when he came to Christ... He said to God, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So in that that atmosphere, all of a sudden, drugs. Drugs had not been part of the teenage world. Not really, drinking maybe and some other crazy things. But drugs, they were kind of launched deep and new to that generation. And kids just started getting what's called stoned, taking drugs, and they just started leaving home, just leaving home, hitchhiking across the nation, living anywhere, living on the streets. They let their hair grow. They had long, long hair, even the boys. And they invented what's now a fashion trend of wearing raggedy jeans and tie-dye shirts. It's that generation that invented them. In that time frame, in Santa Ana, there was a church, a small church in Santa Ana. Maybe you've heard this story, and maybe you've not, but I'm going to tell it because I love to tell it. It's a great story. That church was called Calvary Chapel, the first of all of the Calvary chapels. And there were probably, I'm guessing, maybe 50 to 75 people, ordinary, regular upstanding church people were there. I had a pastor, and his name was Pastor Chuck Smith. 
and he was married. His wife was Kay, and they were straight. Now, the lingo of that day was if you took drugs or you were a hippie, then you weren't straight. If you were straight and you wore a tie and a dress to church, that meant you were straight. Well, Kay and Chuck, she wore a dress and he wore a tie to church. And so did all the people that went to their church. And a matter of fact, the young people actually annoyed Pastor Chuck. He said, those young people, they ought to cut their hair and get a job. Shape up. That's what they need. That's what these young people need. But Kay's wife, she was a little fireball. And she had uh, a strong spirit. She loved the Lord. She had not been a Christian growing up. She wasn't from a Christian home. And she had seen her parents um, go off the rails and start partying. And it affected her childhood. So when she came to Christ, she was on fire. But she still had a soft, soft heart. And she said, Chuck, we need to go down to the beach and start praying for those kids. They're just lost. They're just lost. That's what they did. They just would drive down to the beach sometimes, just park their car, just watch the kids walk along aimlessly, wandering, and pray for them. And God did an amazing thing. Young people started coming to their little church, crowding in. If there wasn't enough room, they'd sit on the floor. I was one of them. It was exciting. The trouble was they didn't wear church clothes. And many of those kids didn't even wear shoes. The church people got annoyed, and then they got angry. Well, this isn't right. They're... They're sitting in my seat. That's where I usually sit. And we have brand new carpet. They'll ruin it. We don't want them. And so they went to Pastor Chuck. We don't want them. And then Pastor Chuck had a divine, defining moment. And he said this. If you're worried about the carpet, rip it out. Bring them in just as they are. Changing them is God's job. Someone even printed a t-shirt that quoted Jesus. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. You catch them, I'll clean them. (laughs) Some of you have heard of Greg Laurie, one of the Harvest Crusades. He's one of those kids. Yes, he was. He was just a high schooler then. Over the next 10 years, thousands and thousands of kids came to Christ. And then they told their parents and their parents came to Christ. And their friends came. And it was called the Jesus People Revival. Shortly after Greg became saved, God gave him the spiritual gift. He didn't go to evangelism school to learn how to share his faith. God gave him a burden. He saw other lost kids. And God gave him the spirit, uh, spiritual ability to share the gospel. Along with him came guys like Mike McIntosh. So in summary, rule keeping does not bring revival in our own hearts, 
nor does it bring revival in a broken world. Last week, George and I, my husband and I, went to a conference with Greg Laurie and some other Christian leaders like Jan, John Randall, pastor um, up in San Juan Cap, and Jack Hibbs and Chino Hills. And Greg and others urged us as the group, urged us, called us to get on our knees again and let God break our hearts, make our hearts tender for the lost, be bold. They said, share it with others, this amazing message that we have. So what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Not legalistic, but a clear command. What's the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It all rolls up in that. And the next I would say, ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be conformed to your image. We want a clean house so that you'll be honored to live in us. We want to clean house in our souls so that we will walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you, and telling others, about your great love. For this we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Oh, lest I forget, lest I forget, um, at that meeting last week, Greg Laurie gave us these little stickers. And it tells us about the Harvest Crusade, August 7th through 9th. And he said they're made so you could stick them on the back of your phone, which I did. I picked up a little stack of them, and I have them out on the table that you can pick one up. So you can pray for lost souls. You can pray for the Harvest Crusade, and you can pray to invite somebody. And also, I have a few Gospels of John out there to pick them up. God bless you.